All right, what's going on, everyone? It's Wednesday, March 30th, and you're listening to The Hustle Daily Show. I'm Zachary Crockett. I'm here with Rob Litterst, and most of you know this guest we have on today, but just in case you don't, he's the founder of The Hustle, and he hosts the great podcast, My First Million. Sam Parr, good to have you back with us again. Was I on episode one? You were. You were on the very first episode we ever nice. did. We're like a 30 days in? <laughs> yeah, we'll have you on every 30th episode. How about that? All right, I'll take it. <laughs> All right, well, today, Rob is going to talk us through a South Korean content trend that is growing like crazy. Sam's got some thoughts on how we might be able to save local news. And we're also going to get into the big surge in people buying safe rooms and doomsday bunkers. But first, let's take a quick look at what's going on today in the news. There's no secret formula for scaling support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all-new service hub from HubSpot, bringing service and support together in one powerful platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible and free up reps' time with an AI-powered help desk. Also, you can keep customers happy. Secrets out. Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. On the hiring front in February, there were 11.3 million job openings and about 6.3 million unemployed Americans. That means there are now a record high 5 million more job openings than available workers. Put another way, that's about 1.8 jobs for every unemployed person. Walmart is putting the kibosh on cigarette and tobacco sales in certain select stores across the country. It's not the first national chain to do so. Target ended cigarette sales in 1996, and CVS did the same in 2014. The chain didn't elaborate on its reasoning, but the decision seems to be driven, at least in part, by regulatory pressures. And lastly, oil has had quite a journey this past month, but gas prices seem to have stabilized at a national average of 4.24 a gallon. Of course, that varies like crazy from state to state. If you want the cheapest stuff in the nation, head over to South Dakota. It's only $3.90 a gallon there. And if you want to torture yourself, uh, come and visit me out in California. I paid six twenty a gallon yesterday to fill up my Honda Civic. Oh my God. Yikes. Let's get into stories here. And uh, Rob, let's start with you. This is kind of an interesting trend. I hadn't heard of this before, but there's something taking South Korea by storm and it's starting to spread outside of the country to other places. You want to fill us in on what Webtoons are? Yeah, so Webtoons are a digital comic format that originated in South Korea that are starting to make a splash all over the place and are starting to make a big push for the American market as well, which you might know has kind of an interesting relationship with comics, right? Like comic books themselves have always been kind of the super niche market in the US, but superhero movies, which are based on comic books, basically own every single box office record in United States box office history. So Income Webtoons, which are this digital format that originated in 2003, there are two huge players in Webtoons in South Korea. There's Naver Webtoon, which has 750,000 creators on its platform and 82 million monthly active users. And there's Kakao Webtoon, which has a Japanese affiliate called Picoma that was the second highest grossing non-gaming app in the world behind TikTok in 2021, doing 96 million in monthly revenue. So big business here with Webtoons. The fact that both platforms allow creators to upload Webtoons for free means there's virtually unlimited range of stories and titles for Webtoons just as a format. And they're really easy to read. They're very quick and easy to read on the go. So they've grown super, super popular. 
What's interesting about Webtoons as they come to America is critics are really wondering if this kind of digital snack culture is going to work for American audiences. On one hand, TikTok has completely taken over America. There are 131 million daily active users on TikTok in the US over the age of 18. But on the other hand, when you think about short form narrative content, there's Quibi, which raised almost $2 billion and shut down six months after it launched because it couldn't hit its subscriber targets. It really raises this question of, are Americans down with narrative short form content? Sam, you and I have talked a lot about this in the past. I feel like Americans love digital snacks. (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking up the article, Zach, that we used to write. I think you wrote this. Let's see who the author is. But there was a company called Hook. There's this genre called chat fiction apps. Interesting. There was Hooked, and there was one more. Right. And they scaled really fast to like 30 or 40 million in revenue in year one. But the churn on these things are crazy high. I did a lot of research on this because there's this company called Crunchyroll. Do you guys know what Crunchyroll is? Yeah, it's like a manga streaming service. Is that right? Yeah, and I'm pretty ignorant. So all the manga fans are going to like give me a hard time that I don't know like the difference between manga, webtoons, and like all the other Mm -hmm. uh, genres. (laughs) So I'm sorry. I am kind of categorizing it all in one. But from a a total outsider, it it is similar. So there's Crunchyroll. They sold for like a billion dollars to, I think, AT&T. And then there was a few other companies that had, I think it's called Hentai or Henta. I was doing research on those companies and the traffic on a handful of these websites was through the roof, like a hundred million people a month coming to their websites. And I went and hung out (laughs) with a friend who's got a 12 year old boy. And I was like, Hey, Victor, what's going on with this thing? What do do kids like this? And he's like, we love it. This is all we read on this type of like comic-y type of stuff. So I'm bullish on it. Dude, I bought a book I read Albert Einstein's biography, and then I saw a version where they made like a webtoon version of like an Albert Einstein biography, and I bought it because no it was an, it was an awesome <laughs> read. It was really fun to like reread it, and so I'm on board with this. What does a webtoon on Albert Einstein look like? <laughs> like I already like read it, so I knew his yeah, biography, yeah. but it was like comic. It was awesome. Yeah, well, I'm I'm a big proponent of visual storytelling, so I, I think there will be a market for this. Hopefully, Rob, like, is it likely that this will leak into the United States and see a groundswell? Yeah, so South Korean creators have already proven they can make massive hits that succeed in the U.S. across a bunch of other formats. Like, I'm sure you guys know BTS, the K-pop group. They've had the best-selling song in the U.S. now two years in a row. Parasite, the 2020 Oscar winner, is the fourth highest-grossing foreign film in U.S. box office history. And obviously Squid Game, the hit on Netflix, was only the sixth title to reach three billion minutes streamed in a single week in the U.S. since Nielsen started tracking streaming. So it was a massive hit as well. Mm. As far as Webtoons go... Naver Webtoon, which is one of the key players, has 14 million subscribers in the U.S. already. So it's not like they haven't gotten into the U.S. at all. They definitely have about 17% of their total readership is in the U.S., but it sounds like they want to make a way bigger splash just because of how big our appetites are for content over here in America. I think it bodes pretty well. I mean, considering they haven't even really pushed really hard for it. And I think, Sam, you're really onto something. And Zach, with visual storytelling, it's probably not a bad thing to have a new app that actually kind of encourages reading, right? Like it's going to get more people to read than just kind of scrolling through TikTok mindlessly. So could actually have some cool ancillary benefits as well. Yeah. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Sam, you know a guy who started a local newsletter recently that's just crushing it and they've raised a lot of money. You're seeing other people do it. And it has to do with finding a sustainable business model for local news, right? 
Yeah, basically, I've got a love-hate relationship with media. I love it because it's so fun to do. I think it's good for the world. I hate it because oftentimes it's not a good business. And the one thing that I love is it happens to be the worst business, which is local news. <laughs> and I've been really curious about how to solve this problem. And at The Hustle, we have like 2 million subscribers now. But mm -hmm. if you really wanted to overwork someone, you could kind of run that with two people, I think. You guys did it. Mm -hmm. Like basically two people could do it. You're going to work your ass off. And there's a lot of people who are now doing that with local newsletters. And I find that to be incredibly fascinating. And I'm going to give you a few examples. There's this guy named Andrew Wilkinson. I'm friends with. He's an entrepreneur. He lives in Victoria, Canada, which is right outside Vancouver. It's like a small town. And he mm -hmm. created this thing called Capital Daily. And now he's got a company called Overstory Media, which owns Capital Daily. That's the Victoria version. Now they're doing it in a bunch of different cities throughout Canada. My friend Nathan Barry is doing it in Boise, Idaho. And he's got like 10,000 subscribers. Hmm. So this is hyper-local news. Hyper localized. But here's what they do. They basically do what the hustle did. A lot of them have reached out to me. And that's why I know about it. But they just said, look, what if we just had two local reporters in Boise and some of these mm -hmm. like second, third, fourth, fifth tier cities, not the New York, not San Francisco, not LA. And we only had two people on staff. Let's let's say that's 70 grand a year per person. So $140,000. And then mm -hmm. we had a local hub that was like your growth, your marketing, your accounting for all these hubs. And it's kind of interesting. I think this is the way to do it. You just have a small team of two or three people and you're just on the ground doing this and local news it has not worked tim armstrong who's the guy who was the ceo i believe of aol uh, mm -hmm. and a bunch of other like relatively smart and like for sure rich people have tried to solve this problem none of them have figured it out do you remember hoodline that was in san francisco the reason they couldn't figure it out was they didn't do newsletters they did blogs and blogs are impossible to run with a small staff because you need more content in order to get more page views right. well, a lot of people listen to this podcast probably know axios is like a business somewhat politic uh, political blog. It's pretty great. They have this new arm called Axios Local, and it's only like a year and a half old. They already have 700,000 subscribers across 14 cities, and mm. that made around $5 million in ad revenue. And now they're also doing subscriptions. My point in bringing all this up is I'm paying attention to these local newsletters, and I think it's awesome. I think it's totally yeah. great. And I think there, there actually might be some really cool stuff that comes out of this. The only downside is I think it's just going to take a long time. So when it comes to using newsletters as a more sustainable business model for local news, what is the advertising model there? Are these like hyper-localized advertisers in the newsletters? That's the downside, which is I bet each market can only do like 500000 to a $1 million in revenue. So at The Hustle, we had a couple deals that were like close to a million dollars. We had a ton of deals that were in many tens of thousands. We had a ton of deals in the six figure right. range. When you're working with local, like maybe Burger King will want to sponsor maybe um, of some bigger chains, a Dunkin' mm -hmm. Donuts would want to sponsor. But you are going to deal with a lot of mom and pop stuff, which is good because I actually think those ads will do great. Like, it's kind of cool to see like a local restaurant. That's a, It's really great discoverability for a reader. And I think actually a better ad experience. It's bad because then your ad salespeople are going to be like slinging like $1,000 ads. <laughs> and it's like a freaking yeah. headache because oftentimes at The Hustle, selling an ad for $1,000 was almost just as much work as selling an ad for $50,000. Right, right. But yeah. I like having local ads. I enjoy that. I I subscribe to Axios Local Austin and I get like a pizza place or something and it's kind of cool. Mm. Ben Thompson from Stratechery has been talking about this forever, just how like in like small localized markets, not that much happens and you just don't need a ton of reporters. And so if you can staff it with a couple of people like you're talking about, Sam, and really just cover the bigger stuff that like needs to be reported and obviously like draw a little bit of attention to some local businesses, 
it seems like it could definitely work. It seems like one of the issues is that a lot of these local papers and like local media outlets are just kind of overstaffed. They're way overstaffed and their websites suck. Yeah. There's two reasons why this is going to work. One, newsletters are just better because it's two people can reach an infinite amount. So let me ask you guys mm-hmm. this, Zach and Rob. Of course, you had Juliet, you had Trung, you had more help. But is there a world where you two could have run the hustle? Let's say that you were paid like a huge sum. So it was like you were willing to grind. Could two people have done that? and reach 2 million people a day. Rob, uh, would that be worth your sanity? The operating word there, Sam, is how much is that huge sum? And <laughs> the operating word there is grind. I think that would be a grind for sure. And so anyway, I'm very fascinated by this model. See, I bet you Substack actually goes in this direction, but I think it's pretty cool. It's a relatively cheap operation to start, and I think very important and awesome to run. Yeah, and you could get even more hyper-localized. I have a friend who runs a publication in San Francisco called Mission Local, and it's just about the Mission neighborhood in San Francisco. I read that still all the time. Mission Local is great. I mean, I think it's one of the, the best examples of a successful local news effort. Does it make money? I don't think so. I think a lot of these places are either nonprofits or they're funded by one individual or some kind of, you know, grant. So it's a whole different ballgame trying to find a, find a sustainable business model for these things outside of those kind of cases. Well, I, I think it's interesting. I am very interested in how newsletters might be able to be used to uh, solve some of these problems. Yeah, we'll see. Hey, everybody, I got a great podcast to tell you about. It's called Truth, Lies, and Work, and it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this show, you can join husband and wife team Al and Leanne Elliott as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. They actually just did an episode with John Smith, who is the manager and agent of famous Argentinian soccer player Diego Maradona. He talks about in this episode how he was able to manage the global superstar athlete celebrity that Maradona is and was. It's a great listen. You better get out there and check it out. And you can listen to Truth, Lies, and Work wherever you get your podcasts. Well, last thing here. (laughs) So we've written about this a little in the past, but, you know, basically every time there's some kind of civil unrest or possible infringement on personal freedoms, we see a boom in the doomsday prepper market. And that means more people buying doomsday bunkers, more people buying safe rooms. And obviously, with everything going on right now between Russia and Ukraine and kind of some fears of, you know, an impending nuclear warfare, sales are going up again. So uh, there was recently a a story in The Hollywood Reporter that said businesses are seeing growth as much as a thousand percent growth in inquiries over the last three months for safe rooms, which are just really secure rooms in your house, above ground rooms usually that are highly fortified and will keep you safe in the case of a nuclear event. There are almost 4 million preppers in the United States. And, you know, when you hear the word prepper, you might think of like a militant kind of off the grid conspiracy theorist person. But the reality is preppers are all kinds of people. They're dentists, they're oil rig workers in Texas, they're techies in California. They run the gamut. And they're just people who are interested in preparing for the worst case scenarios. Can I tell you something? I'm going to confess something right now, Zach, and I fear your judgment, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Right now, I am on a farm that I recently purchased in Fredericksburg, Texas. It's about two hours outside of Austin. I've got 20 acres. I've got cows. It's in the middle of nowhere almost. And I bought it because I'm turning it into an Airbnb to rent out. Sure. But the reason I bought a ranch as opposed to just a house to rent out on Airbnb was because I'm slightly a prepper. I would say I'm not entirely a prepper. But when COVID happened and when the Ukraine thing, I was like, what's the chance that I'm going to have to flee somewhere? With COVID, there was actually a real chance where I was like, 
I got to get out of San Francisco. I lived in a dense city. With Ukraine, I'm not particularly nervous. But in my head, mm-hmm. I was like, there's definitely less than a 1% chance. But that might be worth it. And so the house that I bought, it has a safe room. Really? Yes. Can you describe it? Does it describe it for us? What What is a safe room? It's basically like a huge vault that you can walk into. Hmm. The guy that I purchased the home from, he had like 50 guns on the walls of it. And sure. so it has a room. It's like fireproof. It's like all this. It's not quite a safe room, but it's like it has like emergency things. So you can like put yourself in it and be safe. Hmm. And it's walk-in and it has a light around it. It's like the size of a walk-in closet. Wow. And it's really fascinating. And one of the reasons why I wanted to be out here was I got scared with COVID. I was really nervous. I got afraid with the Ukraine. I'm like, and if you think about it, like the Rwanda genocide was in the 90s. Yeah. Like some crazy stuff has happened. And I got really nervous. And so I would say that I'm an optimistic prepper, meaning I think the likelihood that this is going to happen is close to zero. But I was nervous enough that I was like, well, if I want to invest in stuff anyway, and I just so can happen to use this as an emergency, that's kind of cool to me. So that's why I did it. But the guy you bought the house from is an actual prepper. He is one of those 3.7 million preppers. 100%. And I think you guys would be shocked at how many people, you didn't mean to do this, but you're kind of acting like it's like the other, the other person. Mm -hmm. If I had to bet, Zach, I would say that there's a little bit of this in you. Um, (laughs) Not a lot, but I would say there's a little bit of this in you, knowing what I know about you. And just to be clear, I'm not opposed to the prepping at all. I I think there's a perception that like preppers are like these crazy lunatics that think there's like a zombie apocalypse coming or something. But what you just described is how most people would describe it. I think they're just preparing for the worst case scenario. Like they don't even necessarily think there's a big chance of these things happening. They just want to be prepared in case. And uh, it could mean anything from buying some cans of beans and, you know, some extra batteries and putting it in your closet all the way up to owning a $6 million underground bunker. So there's a very wide spectrum of how people prepare for for these kind of things. One year ago, Austin had a freeze and basically in my house, I had no power, so no electricity, which means no heat and it was freezing. And then we, uh, all the grocery stores were sold out because they didn't have power either. And we didn't have any water. We had zero water. And so when that happened, I was like, man, like it's not that inconvenient because me and my wife are young and healthy and we have friends, we'll go stay there. But if I had an elderly neighbor who was on medicine and she needed electricity, so we actually went and got her a generator. Mm. And so I was like, man, if I had a baby, if I had a special needs person in my home, like this would be really, really bad. And that's one of the reasons why I did this. Sure. If I buy a new house, I would like to get the Tesla battery that goes on the wall, or I would like to get this thing called a Generac, which is like a generator powered by natural gas. So mm. anyway, I'm I'm a little bit on board with this, but I don't think the world's going to end. I don't think America's going to end. Sure. But, uh, you know, there's like a 1% <laughs> chance and I'll invest yeah. in just because that 1%. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say 1%, Sam, because I think 3.7 million is like almost 1% of the American population. Mm-hmm. So it's it tracks pretty closely. Are you not a, at all a prepper, Rob, now that you have a new family? I wouldn't consider myself one. I definitely don't pass judgment on preppers. I totally get it. I, I, <laughs> I think I could see myself going in that direction a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's a man thing too. Yeah, I think you're probably. I think the last couple of years have just been a tipping point for a lot of people. I mean, obviously, like we all saw like these empty shelves in the grocery stores and people freaked out. They panic bought stuff. And it's just like a reminder that at any moment, something like that could happen again. So we all got like a little taste of it in 2020 with all those crazy panic buying shortages. And like riots 
the capital right, being stormed. Right. I'm like, right. man, like things that I just thought were safe, like maybe aren't safe. You know, right. you're seeing b- banks deny, man, maybe I can't access my money sometimes. Right. Like my government is going to get raided one day. There's a lot of things that I'm like, man, what I thought was sacred, maybe isn't. Yeah. Well, those fears have created a big industry. I interviewed 15 preppers back in 2020, and the average spending per year among them was about 1500 bucks a year. Wow. Dude, it's way more than that. Do, do you know how much a, a like a rifle costs? It's like $1,200 for a, a <laughs> decent rifle. And then bullets yeah. right now cost like a dollar a bullet almost. Sure. You know, we're talking like average, just people buying canned food and knives and sleeping bags and stuff. But you can you can easily rack your way up into tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars with prepping. But it's also like buying camping gear. Buying camping gear is just fun. Like I don't need a coffee maker just for camping. I'm never going to use it other than that three times. The gadgets are kind of neat sometimes. So I do think part of it is like, it's just kind of cool to like, you're like fake camping or something. Yeah, a lot of these guys have like what they call bug out bags. It's just like basically a backpack full of gear. It's the one thing they'll grab. Dude, I have one. What's in your bug out bag? I'm just curious. I bought it from my friend. My friend AJ made it and it's $1,500. It's got batteries, first aid, water. Mm. I forget everything. And it's in like a waterproof Patagonia. I think they call it black hole. It's like a, a big, it's yeah, a bug out bag. It's got a, a knife, pliers. It's kind of interesting. It's, uh, yeah. they call it bug out bags or they call it a GTFO bag. <laughs> Get the f- Bag. Huh, wild times. Well, Sam, what I'm learning is you're ready. You are ready yeah, at any given moment, man. I'm not like that good at it, but I'm, I'm new to it. All right, folks. Well, that's going to do it for us today. Uh, thanks for tuning into the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor is Robert Hartwig and our executive producer is Darren Clark. If you liked what you heard today, we've got a lot more business and tech coverage over at thehustle.co. And uh, make sure to get yourself a bug out bag just, just in case. We'll catch you all tomorrow.